go to the Lord in prayer one more time to ask his blessing on the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we admit we are blind to the things of you in Scripture and in Christ unless you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We can read our Bibles. We can listen to sermons and not understand, not comprehend, not respond, not feel any delight or attraction or conviction or sorrow or joy in any of the things that you say to us. Unless you give us hearts to understand and hearts to obey and hearts to change the way we think about you and how we get saved and what it means to be your people, we don't know like we think we know Lord, would you reform our thinking? Would you reshape how we think through the word of Christ? For his glory we pray. Amen. Probably dating myself here, but back in the 90s, the 90s, ah, it's a good time. Back in the 90s, it was popular to display a random dot stereogram as art in your home. I didn't know what a random dot stereogram was when I saw one. I didn't even know what it was when I searched for that thing on the internet when I was thinking about how to introduce this sermon, but I found out that it was called a random dot stereogram. A random dot stereogram is a patterned image in different colors of what appears at first sight to be only a tapestry of lines and dots and shades. But if you hold it close and back up, you can see a hidden picture in or through that tapestry. You know what I'm talking about? At first, you only see superficially without seeing what's really there to see until you kind of unfocus and refocus your eyes to see what is actually there. Some people can see the picture within or behind the pattern almost immediately. And I have to admit, I'm jealous of those people because I can't see it. I was looking at random dot stereograms online for like, I was embarrassed to say how long I did this. And I was like taking my laptop in my chair and kind of putting it forward. I was like, is anybody looking at me? My kids aren't around, are they? And I was looking at it and then taking it away from my face, seeing if I could see it. I couldn't see the image. I could never see it. So when other people see the picture within the pattern and you can't, the temptation is just to kind of assume the picture isn't really there. Like, you guys are crazy. There's nothing there to see. Or to pretend you see the picture just like everybody else when really you're still blind as a bat to it. Oh, yeah, yeah, I see it. Oh, yeah. That's beautiful. But just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. In our series, Through the Gospel of John, we've come to the end of Jesus' public ministry already in chapter 12. John 12, 37 to 50, if you'll turn there with me in your Bibles, John evaluates the public response to Jesus' public 
ministry of teaching and healing. And that overall public response was unbelief. They do not see in Jesus or in his signs what is really there to be seen. And this unbelief raises five questions about faith. Five questions about belief in Jesus. So if you have been reading John 12 this week in your quiet time to prepare for the hearing of God's word, you may have noticed that faith language predominates. Verse 37, verse 38, verse 39, verse 42, 44, 46, all include mentions of faith or believing. So we want to try to ask and answer from our text five questions about believing in Jesus. So follow along in your Bible as I read out loud for us John 12 verses 37 to 50. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The words that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So five questions about faith that We need to ask and answer from this passage. First, why don't people just believe? Why don't people just believe? Verses 37 to 41. So many public signs. John has only given us a representative sampling of them in the seven that he has shown us. Why don't people just believe? Water to wine, the raising of the official son, the paralytic at the pool, the feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, the man born blind, Lazarus raised from the dead. 
Why don't they just believe? Well, people don't believe because we don't want to. We're as stubborn as Old Testament Israel. That's why. That's John's answer. This is how, it is, this is how it's always been. This is how it was with Old Testament Israel, according to Isaiah 53.1. Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In Old Testament context, that's addressing Israel's unbelief, even in Isaiah's day. They didn't respond well to Isaiah. Despite God's word to them from Sinai and God's power displayed for them in the exodus from Egypt and the conquest of Canaan, despite God's word to them through Isaiah and his judgments against them due to their disobedience, They didn't believe. John says here that the Jews of Jesus' day refused to be persuaded by Jesus' signs in order to fulfill the same word from Isaiah 53. Old Testament Israel then was not just representing itself in its own historic and national unbelief. Old Testament Israel was also representing the unbelief of Jews in Jesus' day. And as a nationalized Adam entering the expanded garden of the land flowing with milk and honey, Canaan, Israel represented all humanity from all time in our stubborn unbelief as a response to God's generosity in revealing himself to us. We're like them. When you read the Old Testament and you're marveling at the unbelief of Old Testament Israel in the face of all that God had done for them, you are reading your own spiritual biography. People in our day don't believe in Jesus for the same reason Israel of old didn't believe in Isaiah. We just don't want to. Last week, I saw my wife dutifully matching a basket full of unmatched children's socks. I couldn't believe that those were just the unmatched ones. I mean, there must have been like 100 unmatched socks in that basket. She spread them out on the floor by color, and I felt this kind of dull, guilty kind of compassion for her. And so I matched maybe 16 of them into eight pairs And I felt like I had kind of caught my limit, right? Like, okay, good job, Paul. Way to go. You helped your wife, did your duty. And I just kind of said in an honest and kind of self-deprecating way to my wife, you know, I'd keep helping you, but I don't want to. (laughs) I mean, all that statement has going for it is honesty, right? Yes, and we would all believe in Jesus, but we just don't want to. Because we think we have better things to do or to believe. But this isn't surprising either to God or to John. Human unbelief towards Jesus actually fulfills Isaiah's prophecy. The Jews of Jesus' day didn't believe in order that. That's in the Bible. They didn't believe in order that the word of Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled. For John, this is not just about what humanity does with its freedom. This is about what God does with his sovereignty. 
The Greek preposition here translated so that means so that. It's a purpose clause. And whose purpose is that? It's God's purpose. Isaiah's prophecy was about God's suffering servant in Isaiah 53, despised by men, wounded for our transgression. And this refusal of Jesus' Jewish contemporaries to believe in Jesus was not a frustration of God's purpose. It was a fulfillment of God's purpose in order that. Their unbelief, sinful as it was, would result in Jesus' death to atone for our sins. And his resurrection to vindicate his sinlessness and to vindicate everybody else who trusts in Jesus for their righteous standing before God. But it wasn't just that they were unwilling to believe. It wasn't just that they didn't want to. It was that they were unable to believe. Look there in verse 39. We are as blind as Old Testament Israel. We literally don't have the heart to believe in Jesus. That's why seeing signs that Jesus does doesn't fix human inability to believe. Just seeing him do some amazing thing doesn't open your eyes to what the meaning of that thing was that he did. Because seeing with the eyes of your head is different than seeing with the eyes of your heart. And hearing with the ears of your head is different than hearing with the ears of your heart. You can see something without recognizing it like in a stereogram. I mean, that's true even physically. How much more true is it spiritually? John quotes here from Isaiah 6, which is Isaiah's vision of God's holy glory and God's commission for Isaiah's preaching to harden and blind God's rebellious people. God had commissioned Isaiah literally to preach Israel into exile because Israel was rebellious against God's law and did not return his love. Israel from the Old Testament didn't trust and obey God's word in the law because they literally didn't have the heart for it. So as a punishment, God hardened them in their blindness and hard-heartedness to his truth and love. And yet again, God was aware of this problem. This did not surprise God. God knew it was going to be like this from the beginning. From before they ever even entered the promised land, in fact. Listen to what Moses says to Israel on the cusp of entering the promised land in Deuteronomy 29, 2 through 4, which is after they have already been wandering around for 40 years in the wilderness because they didn't believe the first time when they came to the borders of Canaan and saw the giants and were afraid of them. And so Moses says, hey, I know what's going on here, and so does God. Deuteronomy 29, 2 through 4, you have seen, you have seen all that the Lord did before your 
eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw. The ten plagues. The signs, those great wonders. But even though you saw them, but to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Israel was supposed to be God's witness to the nations. They were supposed to witness to his power and grace and love and mercy and compassion. Testify to his saving love. But God said of them in Isaiah 42, 18 to 19, Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send. Now, wait a minute. A blind witness? A blind witness. Now, how exactly is that going to work? A deaf messenger. How are you going to hear what you're supposed to say as a messenger? What is God supposed to do with that? He's supposed to punish it, of course. He's supposed to discipline it. He's not supposed to sweep it under the rug. It's culpable. They're closing their eyes. They're shutting their ears. Yet John is also teaching here that God is sovereign over human unbelief towards Jesus. God is sovereign over that too. Why were they not able to believe in Jesus' day? Because Isaiah had said something 700 years prior. Now before you get up loudly and go storming out the door, hear God out. God is not the one who sinned. You and I are the ones who sinned. When we were as free as the human race has ever been in the Garden of Eden, before the fall of man, what did we do with that freedom? Right. We used it to sin. We sinned in Adam, our head, our representative. Now again, you may not like that. Why am I held accountable for Adam's sin? I don't want to be represented by Adam. Just like a lot of people say today, hey, I got rights over my parents because I didn't ask for you to conceive me. And we say the same thing to Adam. Hey, I didn't ask for you to be my representative because now that I know how it works, maybe I would have chosen different. Would you really? Look at your life. Look at what you do with your freedom. Look at what you do with your secrecy, your privacy. And of course, if you don't like being held accountable in Adam, then you can't also like being made righteous in Christ because it's the same representative principle, headship. You want righteousness in Christ? Then you've got to own your sinfulness in Adam. He is, Jesus is, after all, the second Adam. You can't have Jesus as your new rep if you don't own Adam as your old rep. That's just Romans 5. Our fall into sin was way deeper than we want to admit. 
It did not erase God's image in us, but it did deface God's image in us. It soiled and spoiled every component and faculty of our humanity. Our thinking and our feeling, our attitudes, our inclinations, what we gravitate towards morally or immorally and why, our relational tendencies, our assumptions about God, everything in us got bent by Satan's lie. You will not surely die, Satan said, for in the day that you eat of it, the, knowledge of the, the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of evil, it's a hard sentence to say, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day you eat of that, God knows that you will be like him, knowing good and evil. That's the lie. Why was that a lie? Well, it was a lie for many different reasons. It's misrepresenting God, but it's also misrepresenting humanity. They were already like God. They were made in His image. They were more like God than the pre-fallen angel that Satan used to be. They were more like God than the adversary to God that Satan now was. And they were more like God than they themselves would be if they, eaten, if they had eaten from the forbidden tree. Satan soured humanity on God by lying to us about his character and about our privileges as those made in his image. He embittered us towards God with that lie. And we trusted Satan's word about God more than we trusted God's word about God. Of any tree in the garden you can eat, just not this one. And God had warned us very clearly, don't eat from that tree or else you're going to die. We did it. And so he brought it. He brought the curse. Just as he said he would. That's not God's fault. That's our fault. This blinding and hardening here then is part of God's curse on man's disobedience. Nothing about this is unfair. In fact, God had stacked the deck in our favor. Think about this. He created Adam with a positive inclination to obedience and an ability not to sin. And he put him in a garden of paradise, of delights. Everywhere he looked, beauty, fruitfulness, deliciousness, love. It was a free will choice for Adam and he freely chose wrong. When he sinned, it changed his nature from holy and free to sinful and bent towards serving sin. And we inherited his nature. We are his children. And we are now made not only in God's image, but in Adam's. And that means we ourselves are free only in the sense that we are free from outside coercion to sin, but we are not free from inward or natural compulsion to sin. There's a difference. No one, brother, is putting a gun to your head saying, look at pornography or I'll blow your brains out. That would be outward coercion. Nobody's doing that to you. Nobody has to. You do that all on your own. No one's holding your mom ransom until you sell out for worldly power and influence and comfort and ease and prosperity. 
Live for money or I'll kill your mom. No one has to do that to you. We are compelled from within to sin. Sin appeals to something inside us. And therefore, we sin naturally and instinctively according to our sin nature that we inherited from Adam. In fact, we are not sinners by nature because we sin. It's the opposite. We sin because we are sinners by nature. My nature expresses itself in sinful acts. My sinful nature expresses itself in sinful acts. My sinful acts do not import into me a sinful nature from without. My sinful nature innately produces sinful acts. And that makes it worse. That means when we sin, we can't just say, as we often hear, oh, that wasn't really me. That wasn't the real me when I did that. I didn't mean that. Oh, yes, it was the real you. Yes, it was. That's what's so concerning and guilt-inducing is that it was your nature and you did mean it. But that's not all. God is God. He's sovereign creator. We are sinful, finite, dependent creatures who resent our dependence and our creatureliness. But God says that Part of his glory as God is that he has mercy on whom he has mercy, Exodus 3, 33, 19. And the Apostle Paul rightly concludes, after quoting that in Romans 9, 18, that God also hardens whomever he will. Now, the only way that sentence works is if God has all the moral high ground, and he does. That means that God is the one who has the prerogative to either give mercy or withhold it. That's what mercy is. It's an, an unentitled kindness. Not giving you what you do deserve. So, it's actually... The withholding of mercy that is justice. If a convicted killer is spared the electric chair, that ain't justice. That's mercy. Giving mercy is giving what is not owed, expected, earned, or entitled. No sinner is entitled to God's saving mercy. None. Or even to the opportunity for God's saving mercy. That is a true position of all mankind before God. You and I included outside of Christ. And it is our sinful nature to shut our own eyes to that. That's willful blindness. We just don't want to admit it. The truth is, we will not turn to God and cannot turn to God because we do not want to turn to God. And we don't think we should have to. We don't do it unless God makes us want to turn. That's how bad we are. And that is how good God has to be if anybody is going to be saved at all on his terms. 
The wonder then is not that God hardens and blinds some people. That is justice and righteousness. That is a punishment that fits our crime of willful ignorance and hard-heartedness against the truth and love of God. The wonder then is that God is still patient with us as a sinful human race at all. And the wonder of all wonders is that he would give his own son, Jesus, to come and not only open our eyes to these things, but to take on our own human flesh, obey God's law in every point where we had disobeyed it, earn God's approval through his obedience, and then endure God's curse in our place, on our behalf, as if he had disobeyed in every way that we had. That is the wonder. I can't tell you how often I have to say to my dear three-year-old boy, you've got your shoes on the wrong foot. And how often does God have to tell us the same thing in the way that we think about our relationship to him and his mercy? You have the shoe on the wrong foot. You do not hold any moral high ground over God. God holds all the moral high ground over you. God does not owe you or anyone else. God, we owe God. But why would he, Isaiah even say any of these things to begin with? Look there in verse 41. It's not because Isaiah was blind to God's mercy in Jesus, so he said a bunch of things that condemn us because, well, he just didn't know who, who Jesus was or what he would do or how loving he would be because Isaiah, you know, was, was just too early for that in human history. No, no, no. It's the opposite. Isaiah said these things because he, Isaiah, saw his glory and spoke of him. So listen carefully. Isaiah was not blaspheming God by saying God was sovereign over human unbelief and condemnation in it. Isaiah said the divine glory that he saw. And whose glory did Isaiah see, according to John? It wasn't just the Father's glory. Isaiah saw the glory of the suffering servant from Isaiah 53.1 that John just quoted. He spoke of the glory of Yahweh's suffering servant. But that's Jesus. Isaiah 53 was talking this way about God hardening people and blinding them because, not even though, but because Isaiah saw the pre-incarnate Son of God for who he had always been from eternity past. What Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6, holy, 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 preached them into exile. Until their eyes are blind and their ears are deaf, what Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6 was the servant of Isaiah 53 coming to be rejected by hard-hearted sinners 
only to be raised from the dead and ascended back to God's right hand by God himself. And the servant of Isaiah 53 is Jesus. No one believed in Jesus, even though he did so many signs, because no one had eyes to see or hearts to repent. And nobody had eyes to see or hearts to repent because God blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. But that blinding was judicial. It was a consequence. It was deserved. It was a finalizing of a blindness and hardness that was already there naturally to everybody who has been born in Adam with a sin nature to rebel against God. He confirmed them then in their natural-born blindness and hardness in Adam and also in their own worship of idols that, they have, that have eyes to see but don't see, ears but don't hear. You resemble what you worship. Remember, Israel was idolatrous. So Go read Psalm 115 and 135. They become like their idols. The idols that they worshipped had ears but didn't hear, mouths but didn't talk, eyes but didn't see. And what did Israel become? They became blind and deaf, just like the idols they worshipped. God knows how to make a punishment fit a crime. It's chilling. You don't mess with him. That's a God who deserves the name. And what this doctrine of judicial hardening proves is precisely what we are slow to believe. God does not live in our world. We live in God's world. So first, why can't, why don't people just believe? Second question, why can't people just privately believe? Why can't people just privately believe? Verses 42 to 43. Short answer, because saving faith must testify to what it believes. Now, John does acknowledge that many of the Jewish leaders did, in fact, believe in Jesus after a fashion. The problem is they didn't follow through on that belief. Jesus was testifying to himself and to God. His own signs also attested to his identity and truthfulness. And these leaders believed, kind of, in a way. But they did not believe Jesus' testimony in a way that compelled them to testify against their own worldly interests. They didn't want to get thrown out of the synagogue like the man born blind. To be thrown out of the synagogue was not a tough love measure to bring people back to the truth like church discipline. It made you and kept you a social pariah. You were out. Not because people wanted you to see that what you needed to do to get back in. You were just out. And that's why people fear it so much. But is this not a problem for many of us still today? I'm not saying that we all have to be street evangelists or go knocking on doors. But if you're unwilling to testify to the testimony of Jesus, what good is your belief? I had a friend in high school who asked a girl to be his girlfriend. And she said over the phone to him, after a long period of trying to be convinced, okay, but let's just keep it secret. (laughs) Yeah. 
That's not a relationship. (laughs) And that's John's point about these leaders. Their faith in Jesus was fruitless. You're not going to put your money where your mouth is, are you? You're not even going to put your mouth where your heart is. What good is it to believe Jesus' testimony if you yourself do not testify to the testimony that you say you have believed? Privatized faith in public testimony, the public testimony of Jesus, privatized faith in Jesus' public testimony, that appears to be worthless to John. Friends, bearing self-sacrificial testimony to Jesus is part and proof of believing Jesus' self-sacrificial testimony. Evangelism is not extra credit Christianity. It's entry level. You believe? Talk like it. Tell someone. Tell someone who doesn't believe that you do believe and that they should believe. Or else I'm not sure I believe that you believe. Jesus makes it very clear in the Great Commission to his disciples. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Well, what are you doing about that, Christian? Or are you just assuming that other Christians are doing that? If you are a disciple, then Jesus tells you to go make other disciples. Saving faith will inevitably bear witness to what you have seen Jesus to be in Scripture and in your life. Why is that true? Why must it be true that saving faith in Jesus will bear witness to Jesus? Why? It's because saving faith seeks God's glory over man's glory in verse 43. Why didn't these Jewish leaders testify to their own faith in Jesus' testimony? Because they love the glory of men more than the glory of God. It's as simple as that. That's it. They loved and sought and cherished glory, praise, approval, recognition from men, acceptance by men, more than they wanted and cherished the glory, praise, approval, recognition, and acceptance that comes from God. This is true to what Jesus had already said in John 5, 44. How can, how can you believe? When you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. How in the world can you believe in Jesus If your whole life is built around seeking acceptance, glory, approval, money, admiration, and promotion from man. That's a rhetorical question that Jesus thinks they can't answer. You can't believe if that's what you're about. Simple matter of priorities. They wanted to keep their membership in the club, and so they went silent about who they thought Jesus was. Now, this should sound familiar. There is someone in John's narrative who believed in Jesus, testified to Jesus, and did get thrown out of the synagogue. That's the man born blind. Jesus gave him sight, both physically and spiritually. The man testified, and he was willing to pay the price. The power players threw him out of the synagogue. That, that is John's model for faith. 
This right here in John 12, this is inferior faith, and it's unclear whether John even respects it as saving. Can faith in Jesus' testimony that itself does not testify to Jesus' testimony, can that faith save? That's the question. Now, John doesn't answer it for you, does he? He just leaves you hanging. He leaves you to answer that question all by yourself in your quiet time. And he's leaving you with that question hanging in your mind on purpose, and he expects you to answer it like he would. Many of them believed, but they would not confess it. And the question John intends to raise in your mind is, are these religious leaders even saved? If they know who Jesus is, but they won't stand up for him. There's a visceral reaction to that when you put it like that. Is there not? Shame on them. Oh, you knew, you knew who he was? You knew? And you said nothing. Ah, yes, it's very clear when it appears in someone else's life, is it not? he means for you to ask yourself these same questions. Do I believe if I do not testify? You tell me, John says. You tell me. Professing Christian, member of Grace Covenant Baptist Church, is your faith really saving? If you don't do evangelism because you love man's approval and acceptance more than God's? Is a crypto-Christian even a Christian at all? You tell me. To ask the question should be to answer it. Well, what then is it that we must testify to in order to be a Christian? So why don't people just believe? Why can't people just privately believe? And what is it that people should believe? That's our third question. What is it that people should believe? Verses 44 to 46. Here in verse 44, it looks like Jesus has emerged to make one last public statement that summarizes his whole message and mission. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. That's what you've got to believe. That's how Jesus sums it up. You've got to believe something about me and my relationship to God. That is not true of you and your relationship to God. To believe Jesus is to take him at his word that God is who Jesus says he is. God is who Jesus says he is. Not who you say he is. When you believe Jesus, then and only then do you believe in God. Jesus is not interested in a Christless theism. Because Christless theism lacks firsthand testimony to the theos, God. What theos is your theism about? And based on what testimony? Who saw the theos that you say you believe? Because you haven't seen him. But Jesus has. When you believe Jesus, you believe God is the God who sent Jesus. 
And therefore, if you don't believe in Jesus, then you don't believe that God is the God who sent Jesus. You see? It's a different God altogether if you don't believe in Jesus and what Jesus says about God. Jesus is the Son of God, sent by God, sent from God to speak for God. That is what you must believe. What's more, you should believe that whoever sees Jesus sees the God who sent Jesus. In fact, you should believe that the God who sent Jesus is in Jesus doing his works. So there's distinction between the Father and the Son, but there's not division. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Son, but the Son is the exact image of the invisible God. The Son is in the Father. The Father is in the Son. To see Jesus' moral character and saving power is to see the character, power, divinity, nature, and glory of the invisible God who sent him. Shining out from Jesus, shining in and through his works and words. Jesus, then, is not simply God's messenger or prophet or agent. Isaiah was God's prophet, and John was his apostle, a messenger, but neither would ever have said of himself, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. That's a different level. Jesus is a whole different order of being than Isaiah or John because when you have seen Jesus, you have seen God's character, divinity, glory, and power in Jesus. That and nothing less is what we must believe. Now look at why John puts this statement of Jesus right here after critiquing the crypto-Christians. Jesus was sent by God to represent God. If that's true, then to believe in Jesus is to testify to Jesus as Jesus testified to God. You want to be like Jesus? Well, Jesus testified to God. So if you believe in Jesus, you should testify to Jesus like Jesus testifies to God. Jesus glorified God by testifying faithfully to God in the world, to the world, even to his own hurt and to his own death. And so we glorify Jesus by testifying faithfully to Jesus in the world, even to our own hurt, even to our own death if necessary. And in that way, when other people see us, they may not see a perfect image of Jesus, But they should see a faithful image of him. Jesus will say to us later, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. So when you see Jesus, you see God. But Christian, when others see you, do they see Jesus in you? Do they hear Jesus from you? So we must believe that God lives and works in Jesus and also that God enlightens our darkness through Jesus. In verse 46, Jesus has come as light into the world so that all those who believe in him no longer remain in darkness. Yet that sentence, of course, assumes that everyone who does not see or believe Jesus' light began in the dark and stays in the dark and that darkness is both moral and spiritual. A Christian lives in the light in more than one sense. Christians live in the light of knowing Jesus, and therefore we know God and understand the Bible based on who Jesus is, but even our sins we bring into the light to confess and repent of them. And in context, we also live in the light of the sense of not being crypto-Christians. 
We testify to who Jesus is publicly. We witness to his divine identity and truth, his bodily death and resurrection. We seek the light of God's approval rather than man's. We give glory to God by testifying to Jesus, not by abstaining from testimony as if you're pleading the Fifth Amendment, and certainly not by testifying against him. Jesus came as light, and so we live in his light. We no longer live by the darkness of mere human philosophy or ambition or acceptance. We live by the light of God's truth and power in Jesus. The light of Jesus then becomes the criteria for all of our thinking, feeling, deciding, and prioritizing. We bring everything into that light. And that is what enables us to live in ways that seek God's approval over man's approval. But then fourth question, what if we don't believe? What if people don't believe? Verses 47 to 48, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. In context, hearing Jesus' words without keeping them means saying you believe him in private without bearing witness to him publicly. He's not addressing people who reject Christianity outright. He's addressing the crypto-Christian trend in verse 43 that was sweeping the city of Jerusalem. When Jesus says he does not judge crypto-Christians, those who hear him, they hear what he says, they've got ears, they just don't keep his words. When he says he does not judge them because he didn't come to judge, that coming is specifically his first coming, his incarnation and earthly resurrection. So if anyone heard and didn't obey Jesus' word during his first advent... Jesus wasn't the one who would judge them, at least not while he was living here on earth. But that doesn't mean that they would get off scot-free for their unbelief. Or if they never came out clearly for Jesus. It's the same for those who reject Jesus' teaching outright or take it to mean, nothing, take it to mean something Jesus never meant by it. That also is unbelief. The word Jesus has spoken will judge such people. In other words... The very message that you either refuse to publicly own or that you refuse to believe will actually be the criteria on which you will be judged, no matter how adamantly you object to its truth. A lot of you probably remember the old movie, My Cousin Vinny, famous line from that. I strenuously object, Your Honor. I strenuously object. And one of the characters makes fun of the girl. He says, oh, I strenuously object. Oh, you strenuously object. There's a lot of strenuous objecting to God's judgment of unbelief right now. God is not concerned about how strenuously you object to it. Because Jesus' word is still going to judge you. Precisely because you reject it. So Jesus is flatly contradicting the spirit of our age here. Christian, Jesus will not understand it if you caved in and clammed up every single time you had the chance to speak up for him in public because you were afraid to sacrifice for him. If you believe Jesus' testimony, then testify to it. And non-Christian, just because you reject Jesus' word doesn't mean you'll be judged by a different word or standard or not judged at all. No, no, the Jesus of the Bible... The real Jesus says you will still be judged by the standard and truth of the very gospel you rejected. 
Friends, the real Jesus thinks there is, in fact, a last day coming. Did you catch that? The end of verse 48. The word which I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus believes in judgment day. Jesus believes in judgment day. And the standard of judgment will be the same for everyone, whether we believed his word and testified or whether we believed his word and chickened out of testifying or whether we rejected his word altogether. So do not think that just because you've rejected Jesus or just because you have believed in your own sanitized, heavily edited version of Jesus that you are exempt from judgment day. God doesn't just judge you on what you self-consciously say you believe. God doesn't just judge you based on whether you were consistent with your assumptions or not. (laughs) What kind of God is that? Well, what did you believe? I believe that everybody can do whatever they want. Did you live consistently with that? I sure did. I tried to, God. Well, okay, come on in. I mean, come on, man. You can't be serious. You think that's God? That's harder to believe than what we're preaching. If you believe in the real Jesus and his words, you must believe in Judgment Day. And the way you make it through Judgment Day is to believe that God is our holy creator and our righteous judge who created us to know and love and serve him forever. We sinned against him and committed blasphemy, sacrilege, by believing Satan's lie that God is really not as good or loving or righteous or wise as he said he was. And we really can't leave right and wrong up to him. We rebelled against God's moral authority over us, wanted to rule ourselves as if we could do a better job than God. And that rebellion drew down God's righteous anger at us for our rebellion. And yet God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, into the world to take on our human flesh. And God the Father was in Jesus, reconciling us to God by Jesus' sinless life, lived for us by his undeserved death in our place for our sins, under God's wrath. And God raised Jesus from the dead to vindicate his righteousness. And if we turn from our sins and our self-reliance and our self-made doctrines and trust in him, if we take God's side against our sins, if we forsake our sins and our attempts to justify ourselves before God, then God will forgive us our sins, cleanse us of all unrighteousness, and hide us in Jesus while he judges the unrepentant world. That's the gospel. And as ironic as it sounds, as unbelievable as it may have sounded to those who heard Jesus, his word is the standard and criteria by which we will all be judged. But maybe you still doubt. After all, who's to say that people deserve judgment if they don't believe in Jesus? Who's to say? Isn't that the question that you hear at the office water cooler? Who's to say? Isn't it just my word against yours? This is a great question, isn't it? Who's to say people deserve hell if we don't believe? John 12, 49 to 50, Jesus says, Jesus is to say. Jesus is to say. Because he says only what God commands, which is eternal life. Why should it be Jesus' word that judges those who don't believe? Because of verse 49. I have not spoken of my own authority, but my Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Jesus can say in all integrity and sincerity that he is not calling his own shots. His word is the ultimate authority and criteria, not simply because it came from his own physical mouth, 
He's not being arbitrary here. His word is the ultimate authority and criteria of judgment because he received everything he said directly from God. The Father gave Jesus a commandment, and that means Jesus is under the authority of his Father. Jesus did not arrive on the scene as someone claiming total autonomy, self-rule, out from under God. No. Jesus came at the Father's command, and that command was not just to come into the world, but to say and do all and only what the Father gave him to say and do. It is because Jesus' word is literally God the Father's word that Jesus' word deserves to be the standard for all people on Judgment Day. Yet how do we know that? How do we know? Who's to say Jesus is telling the truth? Well, here again, Jesus is to say. That's the nature of ultimate authority claims. Jesus' word is ultimate because Jesus only said what God the Father gave him to say. And that word, if it is to be ultimate, has to be self-attesting. It has to prove itself. There is no higher authority or reality to which you can appeal in order to verify the ultimate. This is the ultimate. Jesus speaks God's word. That's an ultimate statement. How do I know you speak God's word? Because I speak God's word. That's how you know. Because I said I speak God's word. And me saying I speak God's word is God's word. That's how you know. So Jesus is using his own word to testify to his own word because there is no higher word to which he can appeal. After all, John began by introducing Jesus to us in John 1 as the embodiment of God's word. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Ultimate authority. If Jesus is that word, then he authenticates himself and his message is self-authenticating. But how is Jesus himself so sure? Jesus is to say because his knowledge is self-authenticating. I know, he says, that his commandment, my Father's commandment, is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father told me. Now look at the structure of those sentences in your Bible. Look in your Bible. I don't want anybody looking at me right now. Look at your Bible. Verse 50. I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father told me. I know... Therefore, I say, that's it. That's the logic. I know my Father's command is authoritative for truth and for eternal life. I know that. That's why I'm telling you this stuff. That's why I speak the way I do, because I know what I know. Therefore, I speak that, and you should believe that. Jesus' self-attesting word is grounded, then, in his self-authenticating knowledge. Jesus knows what the Father sent him to say and do. Therefore, you and I can know and believe. Jesus' word is true. Because his knowledge of his father's message is reliable. He knows what he is talking about. That's a simple way to put it. Jesus knows the God and the message he's talking about. 
That's why you should believe. And that's why he is to say, and no one else. There's no higher testimony or proof or witness or confirmation to seek in order to verify what Jesus said or who Jesus is. You, you take him at, you, at his word or you leave him. That is the nature of any claim to ultimate authority and reality. It's necessarily self-attesting, self-authenticating, and therefore it can only appeal to itself. And Jesus is saying that he is the ultimate truth and teaches the ultimate truth, which he got straight from the Father's mouth. You can take Jesus at his word or you can not take him at all. What if every time I came home from work or came home from lunch with a friend at church, my wife grilled me? Where were you? I was at lunch with Trent. Well, how do I know? You got the receipt? What's the mileage on your car? I'm calling Trent. Man, (laughs) I was with Trent because I told you I was with Trent. And if you don't believe I was with Trent, we got bigger fish to fry in our marriage. Right? Yeah. Jesus expects you to trust him. You can't have a relationship with him if you're always continually doubting what he says about himself. If you don't take him at his word, but if you do take him at his word, there is a lifetime, there's an eternal life of love and happiness and joy and reconciliation and power waiting for you with him. That's the way a relationship works. You've got to take him at his word. And the signs that Jesus did are there only to encourage you to take Jesus at his word. And friends, if Jesus is this confident in his own word, then we ourselves should testify to that word with confidence ourselves. Even if the response to our own preaching and evangelism seems as unbelieving as the response to Jesus' signs was. Keep speaking the gospel. It's not a waste. It's not a waste for you to speak the gospel, even when people reject you in it. Listen to this. Listen again to our old, dead, Anglican friend, J.C. Ryle. We'll close with this. We see here that the words of those who speak for God are not thrown away simply because they seem not to be believed at the time. Is that your experience in evangelism very often? Christ's words, though despised and rejected by the Jews, did not fall to the ground. Those whom they did not save, they will condemn. There will be a resurrection. I love this as a preacher. There will be a resurrection of all faithful sermons on the last day. Great is the responsibility of preachers. Their words are always doing good or adding to the condemnation of the lost. They are a savor of life to some and of death to others. And great is the responsibility of the hearers. They may ridicule and despise sermons, but they will find to their cost at last that they must give an account of all they hear. The very sermons they now despise may be witnesses against them to their eternal ruin, end quote. Friend, if you are hearing these words of Christ, they will be your everlasting life or your everlasting ruin. Believe them now and live. Let's pray together. Lord Christ, we believe that you are in the Father and the Father is in you and the Father was doing his works in you and your 
earthly ministry. And we love you. We, we trust you. We want to trust you more. Forgive us for what remains of our unbelief. And draw more people through the ministry of this church to believe in you, to trust you, to take you at your word that you really are who you say you are, that you really do speak only what the Father has given you to speak, and you really only do what the Father has given you to do. You really are trustworthy. We really can take you at your word, and we really should. Lord, make us good models of this as Christians and as a church together, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.